each one. Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Such revelation, such clarity that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Flood our hearts with light and revelation. And we might have, have an expectation of the thing that you've called us to. We might see and know, recognize and realize the riches of the glory of your inheritance. Sons and daughters of God, what we have, what belongs to us. We thank you for a greater clarity of the exceeding greatness of your power that you release towards us. Not just the miracle working power that raised Christ from the dead, that dunamis that makes us mighty and strong with that miracle working power, but also the authoritative power, that same power that raised Christ far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, every name that is named at that authority where you're seated at the right hand of majesty on high. We are seated in you that we might live in that realm, that domain, no longer subject to what the enemy has, but subject to what you have planned for us, the future and the hope that you've already declared to us. So we give you glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving for everything that will be accomplished in every heart, in every life, by your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Praise the Lord. Good morning, church. How are you this morning? Welcome to 1030 service. We're glad that you're here. I'm very excited to be with you uh, this morning. I believe God has some awesome, awesome stuff for us as a people, for his church. Why don't you look at somebody next to you say, the life of God dwells in me, and the life of God dwells in you. Therefore, you have victory in every situation, under every circumstance, and in every place. And your victory releases a fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere you go. You can be seated. Once again, welcome. So glad that you are here this morning. And, uh, and we're just looking forward to what God is doing in each and every life. Uh, and what really know what he's doing because of what he has already done. And uh, we grab a hold of that and understand that. Um, it's just powerful. Just want to remind you, as the, the guys on the announcement said, uh, in March uh, 17th and 18th, Mark and Trina Hankins will be with us. Um, the end, last Sunday in March, uh, is Easter, and so prepare yourself for Easter. Uh, get set to invite people. And uh, um, in May, uh, Brother Jesse Duplantis is going to be with us on a special Wednesday night. And then in June, Jim Hockaday is going to be here for a Sunday of healing. And uh, then July, we'll have our men's conference with uh, Addison and Arden Bevere. And that's Saturday night, July 20th. Um, John Bevere is going to be here. Oh, it's not just men's conference. It's open to the public. So get ready to invite people. And it'll be part of his Awe of God tour on his book, The Awe of God. And, and we're blessed to have them here. So mark your calendars for that. And uh, praise the Lord. A uh, number of great things uh, that we're lining up. Uh, God put gifts in the body to edify us and to build us up, so we're excited about that. Open your Bibles with me to Romans, the 14th chapter, and uh, we have begun a series that we've entitled, really, it's just simply this verse, uh, uh, Righteousness, Peace, and Joy in the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost, as some say, and uh, I'm very excited about it. I believe, you know, as we've, uh, Pastor Tosh talked about breakthrough, I believe if we can gain a little bit of understanding, we'll have to take a a run at this, uh, maybe a few runs at this, but if we start to grasp it and understand it, you're going to have some um, serious breakthroughs in your life and uh, some religious ideas broken off of your mind, uh, some ideas that came along the way 
uh, broken off of our mind. And so as we've been talking about this and looking at this, we started last week just really uh, introducing it because of uh, really the day and the time that we live in, uh, what came forth to us as a body on Jan- uh, December 31st. Then uh, a word came forth uh, for the beginning of the year, Rick Renner, and then he talked to us about signs of the last days in the last the last days and the, the tumultuous things that would happen, the things that would take place, anything that can be shaken will be shaken. And so, you know, even in that Matthew 24, Jesus said that he who endures until the end, right? And so that's not just hang out and go, man, I'm enduring all this bad stuff. That word endure, that Greek word endure means to remain in or to remain under. So as we remain in faith, as we remain uh, uh, under really what we've learned and the things of God, we will come out to the end. And so Jesus said, this, is, this time is going to happen, but I'm preparing you to go through that. I'm preparing you for this very time. We are in the kingdom for such a time as this. And so uh, I believe that God is preparing us and helping us. But if we're not careful, the things that go on around us will distract us. If they distract us enough and we don't understand really some things that are going on inside of us to begin with, that uh, we will become subject to the things around us, the things that are happening, the, the cultural things that happen rather than subject to the word and the power of God through this time. But if we are subject to the power of God, we understand the realm that we live in the realm that we live in, uh, then we will be victorious. And Jesus has already purchased the victory for us. And so we began last week talking from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. I'll just paraphrase that for you. But he said, you he made alive. Somebody say, he made me alive. It says, you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. So he goes on to say, listen, every single person was because of Adam dead in their trespasses and sins. And because of that, they were, we were all prone to move with the fads of this world, the seasons, the times of this world, how they go. We're subject to that all the time. Even in the body of Christ, there will be certain fads that go that we think we have to follow. He said we get subject to that, and the fads or the course of this world is determined or dictated to or reigned over by the prince of the power of the air. And he's the one that works in the children of disobedience. And so what are the children of disobedience? They're the offspring of Adam's sin or Adam's disobedience. And so he said, but God... Because of that, he said, we were all that way. We were all that way at one time, but God, who is rich in mercy, the Amplified says, in order to satisfy, in order to satisfy his great love. So we go back to that covenant love, that love that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, that love that never fails, that love that never ceases being. And so because it's a covenant love, it never ceases being. As soon as mankind was caught in this course governed by, ruled over by the course of this world, dictated by the prince of the power of the air, God in his love could not leave leave it that way. He could not leave the man that he created to have fellowship with apart from him. So in order to satisfy his love for us, he sent Jesus to die for us, right? And it's by grace that you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast, right? He goes on to talk about a number of things there that hopefully we will unpack for you. 
And so there's a lot here. The more I get into it, the more there is to unpack. But I believe it's vital in breaking down some thoughts, breaking down some things uh, to do this. I, uh, you know, last week I came home and went, oh, this is getting big. And then I came home again this week and said, man, this thing is just getting bigger and bigger. The more I study, the more I pray. I told Tasha, you know, I was reading uh, some books on, on uh, uh, different philosophies and philosophers, and I was just reading a bunch of stuff. And I said, man, whew. some people, when they read, it brings clarity. For me, it gets really crowded up here. Um, and then I have to, I have to start uh, bringing it apart. But I said, man, there's a lot here. And she said, well, how do you eat an elephant? I said, well, I've never eaten one. I'm not sure. She said, one bite at a time. And so we're, we're just going to try to go through this one bite at a time. I'll try to be careful to give you time to chew a few things and to swallow and to digest. Um, but I believe it's that important. And again, I want you to come with ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying. I really don't want to, you know, I said this with uh, our covenant teaching, our covenant connections, but it can happen if we're not careful. You just come and you hear my voice and I'm talking at you uh, instead of talking with you. And so I know it's a different kind of communication than us sitting down and having two voices go, but I, I really want it to be a, a, a communication from God that we're, not, we're together in this. We're learning what the Bible is saying because I believe it's that vitally important. And hopefully as we unpack it, you'll see the importance of it. You'll really not want to miss a day to, because it's going to be, I believe, transformational Amen. in your life. Amen. Now, again, it, you, you can hear a number of things that are awesome. It's up to you whether it transforms your life or not. But the possibility of it transforming your life and putting you above everything that's hindered you and made you feel like, I can't do it. I can't go on. I can't be what God called me to be. That you'll learn something that causes you to rise above that and no longer be held by anything that you don't desire to be held by. Amen. And if you are held by things that you, you desire to be held by but are wrong, that you'll realize that and desire, I don't want to be, I'm not going to be held by that anymore. Amen? So Romans 14, 17 very simply says this, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not eating and drinking, but it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so uh, we started last week talking about this and defining the kingdom because so many Christians, even when we go back to what Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, are always transferring in some level of thought to heaven, that location that's far off somewhere in time after we get out of this mess, right? But he's never really talking about that, and he takes four, the four Gospels, and the Holy Spirit has the writers come at it from different perspectives, add things here and there. But really, the, the, the predominant uh, thought that Jesus brings throughout the four Gospels is the kingdom of God. And if we translate that down or dumb that down just to heaven and getting to heaven, then why did he say, pray, that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done right here on earth as it is in heaven. As we'll begin to break down, we begin to think all this happens in heaven. But in 1 John chapter 4, he said there's going to be a boldness in the day of judgment when we stand before Jesus. For what reason? Because as he is, so are we when we get to heaven. No, as he is, so are we in this world. 
So he's talking about the transformation that takes place when you understand these things about the kingdom, about the kingdom. So we use this definition of the kingdom. The concept, this is it, the concept of the kingdom is not primarily one of space, territory, or politics, as in a national kingdom, but instead one of kingly rule, reign, and sovereign control. The kingdom of God is the realm, the realm where God reigns supreme, and Jesus Christ is king in this kingdom. God's authority is recognized and his will is obeyed. So when his kingdom comes, his will is done. That's why he said, I want you to pray this. I want you to pray that the revelation, that the kingdom of God has come. The rule, the domain of God. That which was broken, God's authority, God's power, which was broken when man disobeyed him and yielded to the enemy, now is being restored to man so that God's will can be done right here on earth as it is in heaven. As importantly as God's will being done on earth, again, locale, is God's will being done in you. In you. Now listen to me. Write it down if you're taking notes. In you, not simply in your life. That God's will will be done in you as it is in heaven. Because there's something different about in you, not just around you. So when we think about his will being done in my life, we're thinking about our money, we're thinking about stuff. It may be affected, but it won't be affected nearly as God's plan without his will being done in you. So there's a transformation in you. So with the days that are ahead of us, again, whether you've been a Christian for 60 or 70 years, whether you're uh, just born again, whether you're a youth, a young person, I want you to listen to write things down. This is very important because we're, we're going to be talking about how you reign in life. Because culture and society is trying to reign to the point where things are not right. Now, Isaiah said, whoa. When it, that word whoa is a big deal. When God says whoa to anybody, but he says, woe unto those who are calling wrong right and right wrong. He said, woe. So as we get into this where we reign in the aspect of righteousness, you're going to see why it's so important, why he said that. Because it's a big deal to call something righteous that is not. Because the kingdom, the reign of God, primarily has its dominion in righteousness. And if we understand righteousness, the enemy also does. So if he can tell you that what is not righteous is righteous, then we come to that place where Jesus said, listen, if the light that is in you is darkness, how deep then is that darkness? So our culture is calling things right. They're telling you young people, there are things that are right that are obviously wrong. But if you believe it, you'll be caught in darkness and that will begin to rule and govern your life, your relationships, and the outcome of your life. But if we allow the light, the truth of God's word, and the righteousness of God to be understood, then through that, we will reign in life, we'll reign over those circumstances. We will be able to take a firm stand 
in the idea and the understanding of what is truly right. See, there's, always, there's all kinds of things that are being propagated today that will cause you to gravitate over into things that are not right and believe that they are. Things like, listen, man, I have my own truth. Most of the time when people have their own truth, they know I've got something that's wrong, but I'm not going to face it, so I'm going to call it right in calling it my truth. But we're not called to live by everybody's truth. We're called to live by the truth. So anything other than the truth is a lie or deception. So when you say, I know the truth says this, but that's not my truth, you're yielding to a lie of a personal experience that's probably rooted in sin consciousness, which will bind you and it will keep you from the very will of God. But in keeping you from the will of God, the enemy will whisper in your ear, if God was so good, why is this happening? But God is good. You just didn't believe him. You had your own truth. Right? So the enemy's subtle. He makes it sound good. But God knows the truth. And he said, I want you to know it because it'll set you free. To know it will set you free. The truth can't set you free without you knowing the truth. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, again, interesting, just not, we're not going to spend too much time on this, but Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and we're going to go through Romans a lot, it says, uh, therefore, having been justified by faith, if you're taking notes or you're in your Bible, highlight that justified, we're going to talk about that a little bit today, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace, so powerful, grace in which we stand, and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, righteousness, peace, and joy. There's something about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, enabled by the Holy Spirit, that causes us to overcome in life. Now, it doesn't seem like that. We set all kinds of rules and regulations, and we say, this is what the kingdom's about. But God says, no, it's not about that. There are governing forces that cause you to rule with him in life. The, those are the governing forces. So turn, uh, turn over to Revelation chapter 5. Again, this is some, uh, a little bit of review before we get into it. Revelation chapter 5, and starting with verse 8, really tells us that we were redeemed. We were redeemed to reign. We were redeemed to reign. He says, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, that's speaking of Jesus, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Praise the Lord. The blood of Jesus, that covenant, that redemption, that purchasing our life, that ransoming our life from the slavery or the bondage or domain of sin. You've redeemed our life unto God out of every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, and you've made us to be kings and priests unto our God. So the revelation of that means we shall reign on the earth shall reign on the earth. 
So the first thing to understand is we got born again, not to go to heaven simply, but to make a transformation and a change of what's been going on here in our life or in us on earth for the here and the now. So too many people are even bored with church or religion because they think, oh, what does it have to do with me? It has everything to do with us here and now. Moment by moment, thought by thought, action by action, there's something that is either trying to govern you or that you get the opportunity to govern. Praise the Lord. So we get all upset, you know, we get upset at our government. I was talking to somebody one time, and, uh, you know, we're, you know, get into a little politics, and I don't understand why we're doing this, and why we're taking after people. We're the greatest nation in the world, and yet we compromise. We go with other people who are lesser, and I said, well, wh- wh- why do you think that's so? I don't know. I just think it's stupid. I said, yet here we have the greatest thing in all the world, but we're always looking at people who want what they have. Right? So we get to that point where there's just an understanding that if we understood what we have, why would we compromise for something else? So it brings us to the point that we just don't understand what's working. And I don't even know if I'll be able to explain it. I'm asking the Holy Spirit to help me speak. You have ears to hear. So you might even hear what I don't say, but you hear what he says. That'll just help us, all right? But we've been set in this place to reign. And so Romans chapter 1, verse 16, we brought this up last week, but I love this. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because he said, I know that the gospel is the power of God to bring people to salvation. He said, I'm not ashamed of it. And he said, what I know is in the gospel message, the righteousness of God is revealed. So most Christians have problems with boldness witnessing because they don't understand. They think the moment I talk to these people about Jesus, they're going to they're gonna be upset. They're gonna, we're going to have a big debate. And they're going to, you know, ultimately, they're going to present a question like this. How can a God who loves people send them to hell? And we don't, unfortunately, most Christians don't know how to answer that question. But if you just preach the gospel, you do understand. When somebody says, how could a God who loves people send people to hell? You just have to say, listen. I have some information for you. I have some literal truth for you. God is not sending you to hell. You get to choose. And be careful how you choose, because when it comes to the end, it will be your choice that you chose to go to hell. God's not sending. Oh, wait a minute. But God's God. He could do something about it. He did do something about it. He sent Jesus to save you. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the presentation. And that gospel is alive with power. So if he could just get somebody to boldly say it, it would penetrate to the hearts of people. And it would reveal that God was right in doing what he did to send Jesus to save you. From hell and destruction and eternal separation from him. 
and join you to himself in oneness. So in it, the gospel is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith. In other words, what they were, what they were believing to in the Old Testament to faith now that we've become the righteousness of God in Christ. So Romans chapter 6, here's a great example of this. We're going to break this down a little bit today. Hebrew, uh, Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. He's following up on something that he said. This is our nature. It's funny that we've just gone through some of this just in the past 10 or 15 years. But he just told them, explained to them the whole deal. This is how sin entered the world. Well, I just don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair that we have to choose Jesus. Why can't we just choose whatever religion we want? Because that wouldn't be fair. What do you mean it wouldn't be fair? Because every religious leader didn't bring sin into the earth. God, when he created, put it on one person. And he said, you will reproduce after your kind and everybody will come after you. Not whatever they want, they'll come after you. So he explains, through one man, Adam, disobedience created sin and sin brought condemnation. Sin with itself brought condemnation. Your neighbor's not judging you. They don't have the power to judge you. Sin is judging you. It's working in you. He said, but Jesus, through one man, sin entered the world. And through one man, justification became available to all. That's fair. That's fair and that's just. One for one. Not one man brought it because of God's design, and you can choose whatever way out you want. No, God designed one man to carry it out. He disobeyed. He said another man to bring it through. It's a one for one. So he brings that fairness, and he said, now because of this Adam, sin was abounding. It was all over the world. It was carried to all human race, but God sent Jesus, and nothing man could do because he was under sin. He sent Jesus, and when Jesus came and shed his blood and died and raised from the dead, all men have the opportunity to be made righteous. Because where sin was abounding, grace did much more abound. Now, that seems to make sense. But like us, it's like law or grace, law or grace. So they've been under the law, so they immediately say, so we have a thought. Since we're not under the law or where sin abounds, consistent sin abounds, grace does much more abound, should we then habitually sin so we can see more grace. Now we think, why would anybody say that? Because there's a sin consciousness that permeates the mind and the soul of man that takes hold, that without understanding, it will trap you into thinking, well, why not? So Paul explains it. He brings, again, he just shared what happened. Jesus came, that's the gospel. So now he gets more finite on the gospel. He said, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, or God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death? So he said, listen, here's the issue. You don't know. You might think you know, but you don't know because if we did know we would know we died to sin. We wouldn't be yielding to it. All right. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, 
we should walk in newness of life. Highlight that underline, that newness of life. Newness of life. Not life after we leave this earth. Newness of life right here. And it's a glorious newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ. The one that was dominated by the disobedience of Adam, the sin nature, died with Christ. We're crucified with Christ. That the body of sin might be done away with. Not pacified, but done away with. That we should no longer be slaves or have our servitude or be under the dominion of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you. So how many of you get that, what I just said, what Paul just said? All right, about five of you. Well, I'll just help you all. If you don't get that, you're probably not saved. So read this again. When you go home, if you're like, I don't know if I even understand that, read it again and again. Because if you don't understand that Christ died with your sin upon him, that you were, your sin was on him, that when he died, you died with him. And when he raised, you raised by the glory of the Father to a newness of life. When you say, I confess Jesus, I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. I have to believe that he was crucified with my sin, that God raised him to a newness of life. And because he did, I make him Lord, but you can't make him Lord without believing that. So we have a lot of people go, yeah, I'll just say I believe it if I get to heaven. Well, believing, saying you believe it and not knowing it and not believing it does not create the transformation of life that you need that God wants you to have because he doesn't want you to just be beat down all your life here and then think you're going to get to heaven because the eternal life starts right here. So if you don't have it here and you just think, oh yeah, I'll pray that and I'll get to heaven, you're going to miss it. When you get to heaven, he's going to say, did you believe? And you say, believe what? And that's a bad place for you to say, believe what? And if you're being dominated, if I'm being dominated by the temptation and the pull of sin every day, we probably don't believe this. But if we believe this, then he says, you can likewise in this same manner that you believe that he died to sin once and for all and he raised to a newness of life and the death that he died was for everybody and the life that he lives is he lives unto God. If you get it, you can likewise reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin and alive to God. Amen. And when you do that, you refuse to let sin reign in your body. You refuse. We're going to get on. I know the religious minds are going, poof, 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 poof. but we got to take this one bite at a time. And so, you know, one bite out of an elephant leaves you for the rest of the week with just teeth marks. Right? 
So he said, uh, likewise, you also reckon yourself dead in, to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it and its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members or your body as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, you're under grace. So God's plan, his great plan, was not simply to get you off to a location called heaven, but it was to have the dominion of heaven come down on the inside of you. For what purpose? To break the power or the ruling force of sin that dominated your life before Jesus. Praise the Lord. And so they said, so should we, should we sin habitually so that grace shall abound? He said, no. Why not? Let me preach the gospel to you. Do you see the righteousness of God? And they went, so we could habitually sin, but since we're not under the law, we're under grace, we can occasionally plan to sin. See, this is when we get to this grace thing, we have to understand the true power of grace. Let me read to you what Kenneth Weiss said about this. He said, Paul has answered his listeners' questions regarding the proposed habitual yieldedness of the believer to the evil nature by showing uh, that that was a mechanical impossibility considering the way the believer's inner mechanical setup was arranged by God, that the power of the indwelling sin broken and the divine nature implanted. So he said, when they asked that question at the beginning, he showed them, listen, how God has built you, once you accept Christ, mechanically sin cannot dominate you. It's an impossibility. So then they just came back. Uh, his listeners come back with another question. He says, in effect, well then, since grace makes it impossible for the believer to sin habitually like he did before he was saved, may we Christians live a life of planned occasional sin since we are not under the uncompromising rule of the law, but under the uh, lenient scepter of grace. Now, when you read it like that, you're like, but we just went through about 15 or 20 years ago, the body of Christ was inundated with grace, which made it sound so much more lenient, and a huge percentage of the body of Christ that never drank alcohol before started drinking alcohol because they thought grace was lenient. Some fell into drug abuse, all these things, because that whole idea is lodged in sin consciousness. That, wow, if I don't have to, then I won't. But listen to what he says about grace that I believe will help us. All right, another bite of the elephant. He's talking about the two different uh, aspects of the questions that they ask. The verb in verse 1 where they say, should we, should we sin, is subjective. It speaks of habitual continuous action. The second verb is in the aorist or subjunctive, uh, referring to one single act. So he refers to Arthur S. Way, who has a translation of the Bible, in his excellent translation and paraphrase of the Pauline epistle, has read this man's mind aright when he speaks of the uncompromising rule of law and the lenient scepter of grace. 
the man simply did not know grace. The law is uncompromising, but grace is never lenient. It is far stricter than law ever could be. It is, far, it is a far greater deterrent of evil than law ever was. So listen to this. I love this example. A half a dozen motorcycle policemen with their motors tuned up are far greater deterrent to speeding than any number of placards along the road indicating the speed limit. So I know there's not very many of you that would be along with me, but this is true confession. So I can be cruising along, maybe over the speed limit, but sometimes not paying attention and not even over the speed limit. Cruising down the highway, and all of a sudden look up, and there is an automobile that is a distinct color and a distinct placement in the median that makes you lift off of the gas pedal immediately. Even though you know what the speed limit is, that policeman sitting right there causes you to pause and look at your speedometer. So even though the speed limit signs were there, even though the law was there, the greater deterrent is the in-person policeman sitting in the highway. So they've learned this in Turkey so well that they put fake police cars. <laughs> Our bus driver slows down. And you look, oh, there's that police car. You look inside, and it's only got one side to the police car. It's not even a whole police car. <laughs> so anyway, listen, this is about grace. He said, the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer takes notice of the slightest sin and convicts him of it. The spirit of grace, empowerment, favor, and influence is in you. And you might have the law and go, we got to abide by that. Oh, grace is lenient. I can do whatever I want. No, just like that policeman when you start going and thinking, oh, I can do that, it's no big deal, you're not really paying attention, something on the inside says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Stop right there, slow down, pay attention. So grace is not lenient. He convicts us of sin. Whereas the law could act only generally, and then only when the conscience of the individual cooperated with it, grace not only forgives, but it teaches not only forgives, but it teaches. So he starts to answer, how do we rule over this situation? How do we reign over this thing? He says, really, it's by the grace of God that we step into a place of understanding true righteousness. And so I want to take a little bite out of this chunk here and talk about the difference between sin consciousness versus righteousness consciousness. Because it gets into our consciousness. And here as he goes on uh, in verse 5, he speaks of this sin consciousness and not letting it rule in, in our mortal body. And he says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, 
You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin or under its dominion, its influence, its reign, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves or under the servitude or the dominion of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now you present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And like, I don't have a problem with doing what's right. Well, if you don't have a problem doing what's right, you need to see if you're saved. So you say that a lot. I just know I'm going to heaven. Don't tell me that, Pastor. I'm just telling you, you want to take a checkup. Because if you don't care if you do right, this is what he says. If you're a slave of sin, if you're still under the dominion of sin, obviously you don't care if you do right or not. It's no big deal. But once you get born again, that no longer has domain over you, and doing sinning is a big deal. Right? So he said this, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? In other words, if you come over to righteousness, you're like, wow, I did some stuff that if I had known, I never would have done. Right? That's the problem with what culture is trying to do with our young people trying to make right, wrong, and wrong, right, is they'll come to some point of realizing right and wrong, and they'll be ashamed of the things that they did, and shame is the core. Psychologists say shame is the very root cause of self-destructive behavior. You want to know why everybody has no hope and no understanding? Because sin has dominated their life, and it wants to destroy and bring to death, and it's come to a pervasive place where we don't know what's right, and we don't know what's wrong. And so people are doing things that they're ashamed of, but they don't even know why they should be ashamed of it. It's an inward clock on the inside of them. They're being dominated, and all of a sudden, there's self-destructive behavior going on because they don't feel worthy. They don't feel deserving. There's such a depth of sin consciousness that they don't even know what they're doing. They're under the dominion of it. And our culture is trying to figure out how to fix it, and you can't fix it. You can be conscious of it, but there's only one thing that fixes it, and it's the blood of Jesus. And our culture will not yield to the blood of Jesus. Why? Because it's under the dictate of the course of this world, dictated by the prince of the power of the air. The church is the only one that can bring light to this situation. Amen. And if the church is caught in sin consciousness, then we can't bring light to it. All right. He said, for the end of those things is death, but now, somebody say, but now, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves or under the influence of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So he said, listen, there is a consciousness in man of sin that he would yield to and it would, it would enslave him. But when you come to know Jesus Christ, and the righteousness of God. You yield to that, and it's actually a governing or ruling force in a believer's life. So God explains, really in Romans chapter 3, people say, well, you can't be righteous. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. 
So for the sake of time, Romans chapter 3, you can read it, uh, starting in, in verse 10, going to verse 20. He lines out, he says, for it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that, that lacks knowledge. Their, their mouth is an open sepulcher. It speaks out all these things. He's saying this is man's condition in Adam. In sin, this is man's condition. And there's a consciousness of that, not being able to be righteous before God. There's a consciousness of that. And so here this one writer says it like this. This is uh, speaking of this condition. He said, man has no approach to God. The sense of condemnation has given him an inferiority complex that makes him a coward. It robs him of faith in himself, in man, in God, and in his word. The sin consciousness holds him in bondage. He has no right to approach God. He, he knows he is not good enough to pray and have his prayers answered. If he does pray, it is the prayer of desperation. This has led him to hit into philosophy. He can no longer keep away from the subject of God and religion than a hungry man can keep away from food. The sense of guilt, inferiority, failure, and weakness makes him reason, and that reasoning we call philosophy. Because of this, philosophers eliminated God entirely from their philosophy. To them, God was a great mass mind without any brain center, without any personality. Philosophy also eliminates Satan. If there be no Satan, there can be no sin. If there's no sin, there is no sin consciousness. This would be fine if it were true, but it is just sense knowledge seeking a way of escape. Then there would be no heaven because there is no life after death. Man floats out into a universal mind and is absorbed by it. There is no resurrection of the body, no judgment. Man simply disintegrates and becomes a part of the great whole. This is but the dream of a man who could not find God with his senses. Say, hmm, well, that's just somebody writing something. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is addressing the philosophy of the day that there's no resurrection of the dead. And he said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, what am I preaching for? What am I being persecuted for? And he said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, we might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, he was saying, listen, we might as well go to the philosophy of men where their sin consciousness has brought them to the fact that we are nothing but a mass. We might as well just have a party spirit, eat, drink, get the gusto out of life because tomorrow we die and then there's nothing here. It's a philosophy of men. Christians even subscribe to it. We might as well party. We might as well party down because someday we're going to die. But when you know you're the righteousness of God and you live for eternity, that right now is not party and die. We live to now for something eternal even in the heavens. And Paul, uh, Peter talks about it. He says, once you get saved and understand righteousness, the people that you hung around with that had a party spirit and got drunk and partied all the time, they're not going to like you. And they're going to say, we'll see, you'll probably come back. And you probably will if you don't have an understanding of righteousness because the world system will dominate you. And you'll become enslaved again because of your lack of understanding of righteousness and the sin consciousness that will try 
to pull you back. So one writer says there's two kinds of sin consciousness. The sin consciousness that an unbeliever has, which really has no hope, and then the sin consciousness that a believer has because of immaturity and a lack of knowledge of his righteousness. He'll always continue to gravitate back to, well, I'm just a sinner, so I can't help it, and I can't help but doing these things, but when I get to heaven, it'll be okay. But the blood of Jesus has empowered us for something far better and far greater. So this writer says to sin consciousness, sin consciousness can be traced as the reason for practically every spiritual failure. It destroys faith. It destroys the initiative in the heart. It gives to man an inferiority complex. He's afraid of God. He's afraid of himself. He's ever searching to find someone that can pray the prayer of faith for him. He has no sense of his own legal right to stand in the Father's presence without condemnation. The inferiority complex that is bred of sin consciousness is faced everywhere in the church. Wow. So A.B. Simpson says it like this. He said, this is the difference between Christianity and all human religions. They try to bring God down to the level of man's sinfulness and adjust the moral scale to the low standard of man's actual condition. Let's don't make it too much because we're sinful. God's plan of salvation is the opposite of this and aims to bring man's condition up to the level of divine law. Not one principle of justice is compromised. Not one jot or tittle of the law is modified or evaded. Every requirement of justice is met, and when man is saved, he is enabled to stand without a blush of shame and claim his acquittal from the very decree of eternal justice as much as from the gentle bosom of forgiving mercy. See, religion tries to bring the standard down. God raised it up in Christ. So as long as we're conscious of sin, we're always trying to lower the bar. But he raised the bar, but he raised the bar and said, you can't achieve to this bar without understanding righteousness. So listen to this. I want to read you a couple other things. But first, I want to bring this to you. What is righteousness? What's the definition of righteousness? This is it. I'm going to put it in here. Some of you know the definition of right standing with God. I'm not going to take that out, but that's kind of secondary to this main uh, definition. And so I know some of you will be stuck in this definition. It's right standing with God. That's not wrong. But listen to this. It's the state of him who is as he ought to be. The state of him who is as he ought to be. To be, that's righteousness. Now listen, just stay with me for a moment. So Jesus said to his disciples, go preach the kingdom of God, the reign of God, which we're seeing the reign of God is in righteousness. Preach the kingdom, cast out devils, heal the sick, and raise the dead. So he said, listen, you're going to preach the kingdom, you're going to preach righteousness, which means to set at right the things the way they're supposed to be. So when you say, this is what God wants to do is set them at right is what they're supposed to be, then stretch out your hand and heal the sick because a sick body is not as it ought to be. 
cast out devils because a human being filled with the devil is not as it ought to be. If we get a revelation of righteousness, healing is going to spring forth. Get ready for your breakthrough. Because when you start to realize this is not a work of my flesh, this is things being set by God as they ought to be. I'm not a sinner being dictated to by sin anymore. God, by his power, set me right. The one who knew no sin became sin. He didn't just sin. He didn't just take on a little bit of my sin. He became sin for me so I could be changed and become the righteousness of God. Not just become righteous, the righteousness of God. And so as we go through this, it's going to say the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. So in order to understand righteousness, just real quickly, we have to understand justification. Justification. Uh Uh-oh. I lost a piece of paper. That'll be a bummer. So justification is this. The term justify means to declare righteous. So you don't get to just be righteous. You have to be declared righteous. It does not necessarily imply that the one declared righteous is righteous. Let that one sink in. In fact, it is assumed in the case of the sinner that he is not righteous. It is the ungodly that God justifies but he recognizes not in himself, but in the person of his substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness, his righteousness is regarded as ours. And for his sake, we are treated even as he is. Wow. So he said, you have to be declared righteous, even if you're not righteous. So I read that. And uh, if you've ever seen the movie Moneyball, you ever seen the movie Moneyball? It's a baseball movie, and it's about the Oakland A's who went on this record run of 21 wins in a row. So Billy being the general manager, who is played by Brad Pitt, he's making all these adjustments in players for a certain reason. And he's getting rid of all the cocky players who, who think they're, and, he, and he's figuring out players that can win how they want. And so he gets this all arranged how he wants. He goes into the locker room, <laughs> and, he, and he goes to give him a pep talk, and he looks at him, and he's, he's kind of like, hmm. And he goes, all right, guys, you're a winning team, even though you don't look like one. (laughs) So go out and win one. And then he walks out. He just justified them. They weren't a winning team. They didn't look like a winning team. But as their general manager, he said, I call you a winning team. Go out and win one. I've taken care of the things necessary to make you a winning team. Now go out and win one. And they won 21 straight. Wow, the power of justification. And that's a lame example of justification. But I thought that's pretty funny. You're a winning team. When I look at you, you don't like much of a winning team. That's like Jesus, you know, the Holy Spirit coming. All right, church, we're a winning team. I know none of you look like winners. But I've done everything possible to create victory for you. So go out and win one. (laughs) Justification. 
Justification. <laughs> By faith. All right, two examples of justification. Can you give me a couple minutes? I think it'll help us. I don't want to cut off here just because we need to. <laughs> All right. Listen to this. This is by A.B. Simpson in his commentary, uh, The Christ in the Bible. It says, therefore, uh, there is such a thing in human course, courts as condemning a man to save him. A wise lawyer, when he perceives that his client cannot prove his innocence, will always advise him to plead guilty and throw himself on the clemency of the court. Mercy cannot be exercised until guilt is confessed. And so God has to prove man guilty in order to save him. The two first chapters of Romans are God's uh, fearful indictment against the Gentile and the Jew. And he finally sums up the whole case by pronouncing both Jew and Gentile under sin and laying them prostrate and guilty before God with every mouth stopped and every excuse silenced. Then he begins to reveal the plan of salvation through the atonement and righteousness of Jesus Christ. So here's an example of that. It said, once in a French prison, a Russian prince, through the prerogative of Napoleon was permitted to pardon a convict. So he proceeded to question the different men he met with a view to finding someone worthy of his clemency. But every man professed to be entirely innocent and indeed greatly wrong and unjustly punished. In other words, everybody in that jail was a victim. At last, he found one who was qualified to receive forgiveness. The only guilty man in the whole prison. And he had nothing to plead for himself, but frankly confessed his unworthiness and acknowledged that he deserved all the punishment that he had received. The prince was deeply touched by his humility and penitence, and he said to him, I have, brought, I have brought your forgiveness. And in the name of your emperor, I pronounce you a free man. You are the only man I have found in all this place ready to acknowledge his guilt and take the place where mercy could be extended to you. This is the place that God is bringing men to. And when he gets them there, he loves to lift them up to his bosom and pronounce upon them the sentence, not the sentence of condemnation, but of acquittal and forgiveness. So when John said the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent, he was saying this, if I could get you to acknowledge what your conscience already conscious of, that you are a sinner and humble yourself before me, I, not you, will lift you up I will pronounce you or declare you righteous. So, well, don't tell people that. They'll just go sin. Not if you get it. Not if you get it. If you actually know, I don't deserve anything here except the condemnation that sin brought. So I bow. I humble myself. 
It's part of that humbling ourselves, and then God lifts you up and puts you in a place, not where you go back to sin, but you realize my sin consciousness existed, but when he lifted me up that day and he declared me righteous, all consciousness of sin was washed away. And the consciousness that I've been made righteous, not of my own works, not of my own effort, not of my own manipulation, but only by his goodness and his grace, he justified me. He declared me righteous. Nobody else, no man could declare me righteous except for the man, Jesus Christ himself. It goes further in this story. It's an allegory of man's soul. It's in the book, Holy War, written by John Bunyan. It says, we have an account of the surrender of the garrison to King Emmanuel. They resisted as long as they could, but beleaguered and starving, they were finally compelled to give up the conflict and yield themselves to the mercy of their conqueror. His answer was that every one of them must come forth into his presence with chains upon their necks and crying, we are guilty and worthy of death. And so in great humility and fear, they marched forth from the city gates and threw themselves at his feet. They expected the severest punishment, for they had resisted to, bitter, to a bitter end and knew that they deserved nothing but death. But as soon as they had echoed their humble confession, King Emmanuel ordered the trumpet of the herald to proclaim in the hearing of all his camp that they were freely pardoned through his mercy and restored to his favor. That their city should be rebuilt, should become his own royal capital and be treated with peculiar favor and that they should be adopted as the children of the king. They were overwhelmed with astonishment and burst out in tears of gratitude and shouts of praise. Yes, this is the glorious paradox of divine mercy. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Man. So we're going to break into righteousness and how you govern your life and how it's a reigning force in God's kingdom, righteousness. That you are set to be as you ought to be, but you did not set yourself there. So many times we've come and it was a step from from the condemnation and the sin consciousness, but we just said, here, listen, any man that be in Christ is a new creation. He's righteous. He's in right standing with God. So we're like, I just forget about my sin. I'm, I'm cool with God. I'm in right standing with God. And our mind leans over in sin consciousness to say, I still don't deserve this. I got to cover this. I got to prove that I did it and I'm in right standing with God. So I don't care what I'm doing or what I'm not. And we've got frivolous with that. But to realize, no, any man that be in Christ is a new creation, not because of what I did, but the one who knew no sin became sin for me so that I might be justified or declared righteous by him. Amen. That he set me just as I ought to be. When I understand that and understand the freedom of that, then I start to realize everything in my life through prayer, through fellowship with him, through looking in this, I realize there's things in my life that aren't as they ought to be. And when I understand righteousness, I realize 
that I can't do really anything about that at that point except for respond to what Jesus has done. And so I yield to the power of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of the Spirit so he shows me this is not as it ought to be. I have empowered you to see what is the right thing and to step into what ought to be. And there's freedom and there's healing and there's restoration and there's such divine power to rule over sin when you, we understand righteousness, the righteousness of God. It's not a laborsome thing. But just like the coach told the, the team, you are one, now go out and win one. Which means once you get this, you're going to execute. So once we know things are as they ought to be, we respond and live as we ought to live. Not trying to do something we can't do, but because of what's been done for us, we live as we ought to live. Man, it's powerful. It's powerful. I don't know if I've conveyed it. Certainly we're not done. We just have one chunk of the elephant. But man, if we can get it, you'll walk out of here. And when the enemy comes knocking, when he tries to pull on something, you're going to say, no, that's not right. No, I'm not doing that. I don't care if everybody else in the world is doing it. I'm more conscious of my righteousness being set as I ought to be rather than what my sinful nature used to do. Now I have power over it. It no longer has dominion in my life. Why don't you stand up? Father, we thank you. We praise you and we magnify you. We thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. The Bible says where the word of the king is, there's power. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. Holy Spirit, I ask you, every person here, as we continue to talk about the kingdom, that they are within that realm of your kingdom, your domain, your reign as believers. That there would be a greater consciousness of the elements that cause each one to reign in life. That even this week you'd bring a greater clarity and revelation of righteousness and justification so that we might see that you have in your own work sanctified us, set us apart from the worldly activity and the governance of the world that we truly might live our life freely governed under the dominion of your righteousness. And how powerful that is. Holy Spirit, I ask you to do what only you can do. Deal with the heart of every single person. The power of righteousness. The strength of grace. God, the understanding of redemption. Covenant would be so moving in our spirit man, in our thoughts, in our mind that the enemy would have no place to govern, to lead us off track, or to influence us in a way of destruction.
but we'd rise to a greater level of dominion over our own life, the thoughts, the temptations, the activity that derail us. We'll set those aside to run our race that's set before us. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's the beginning of all of it, to confess the gospel. You died for my sin. I believe you raised from the dead to justify, declare me righteous, raised to a newness of life. I receive you as Lord. I receive the forgiveness of my sin. He said you'll be saved. You've never done that. There'll be altar workers up here to pray with you to receive the Lord Jesus. In that moment, there's justification. He declares you righteous. In righteousness, there's all the freedom, all the freedom and authority over sin that has tried to dominate your life, whether it be addiction, whether it be brokenness, whether it be worry and stresses, emotional things, mental things, physical things. There's a place for you to have dominion over all of those, and it begins with accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you know that, you need that. Maybe you need to rededicate your life. They'll be up here to just grab hands with you, pray with you, love you, and just help you make that turnaround from where you've been going into the place that God has for you to walk in freedom and liberty and empower over these things that abound you. Amen. Let's say as we go, what God did in Christ Jesus far exceeds any damage done to me by Adam's fall. You can be dismissed. Make it a great day. We'll see you at six o'clock tonight.